thanks again, as always, for listening. I appreciate anybody who listens to even one episode, and I appreciate everyone who's listened to so many. You keep me going. I'm so excited to share that now official on Patreon. You can find my Patreon page, become a member. It's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Again, that's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My name, of course, is P-E-T-E-R-R-I-E-H-L. Patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. You can become a member today. The page is officially launched. There are three tiers of membership. Official patron membership tier is $3 a month. And with that, you'll get access to all interview episodes when they're published, mostly on Tuesdays with some published on Fridays. There are two to four interviews published each month. Lastly, you'll receive the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills at Will podcast news, and you'll get a shout-out on a future episode. That is the official patron tier of membership for $3 a month. There's the $5 a month for the all-access patron. With the all-access patron membership, you'll have access to all new interview episodes. Each month, like I said, there are two to four interview episodes. You'll get access to those as well as a monthly bonus episode or two that is an interview or an exploration of themes through two or three texts. One example would be an episode that I did called Righteous and Justified Anger that was explored through the works by Langston Hughes and Ralph Ellison, or The Power of Flashback was one episode, which explored the endings of The Godfather Part Two, Sleepers, and that was then, this is now. With the all-access patron membership, you'll also receive a refrigerator magnet with the Chills at Will podcast logo, and the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills at Will podcast news you will get a shout-out on a future episode, too. With the VIP patron tier, which is $10 a month, you'll get access to all episodes, a monthly newsletter with reading suggestions and a calendar of literary events and updates on the Chills at Will podcast, access to a monthly AMA, Ask Me Anything, and a t-shirt with the Chills at Will podcast logo. There are two to four monthly episodes, and one or two bonus episodes, which are interviews or discussions of themes as seen through multiple texts. VIP patrons will also receive a special shout-out on a future episode. I encourage you to please join Patreon for the Chills at Will podcast. As I say all the time, this is truly a labor of love. This is truly a DIY operation. I started in April of 2020. And it has been an absolute pleasure, 99.999% fun. I've gotten to interview people like Disha Filia, what? Matt Bell, Brandon Hobson, Luis Alberto Orrea, Jean Guerrero, Gustavo Arellano, Taylor Bias, Gabby Bates, Alice Elliott Dark, Nadia Owusu, and so, so, so many more. Did I say Jess Walter? Did I say Jeff Perlman, Ingrid Rojas Contreras, Jamil John Kochai, Morgan Talty, Sadie Shore Parks, 
Rachel Yoder, Vanessa Angelica Villarreal, Kirsten Chen, Sam Quinones, Ion Grillo, Raina Kelly, Zach Harper, Michael Torres, Tracy Cato Kirayama, S.J. Sindhu, Roberto Lovato, Todd Goldberg, Steph Cha, Noel Kassler, Reina Grande, James Tate Hill, Navdeep Dylan Singh, Nikisha Elise Williams, Mia St. John, Susan Muladi Daraj, Sarah Borjas, and the list goes on and on. Future episodes include conversations with Robert Jones Jr., with Allegra Hyde, with Justin Tinsley, Javier Zamora, Tommy Dean, Elizabeth Williamson, Jose Antonio Vargas, Yasmin Ramirez, Kai Harris, Laura Worrell, so, so, so many cool people. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. What are you waiting for? See you over there. Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 149 of the Chills of Will podcast. It's a pleasure today to be joined by Erica T. Worth. And a little bit about Erica. Erica T. Worth's literary horror novel, White Horse, is with Flatiron Macmillan. Her work has appeared or is forthcoming in numerous journals, including BuzzFeed, Boulevard, LitHub, The Writer's Chronicle, and The Kenyan Review. She is a Kenyan and Sewanee Revello and a narrative artist for the Meow Wolf Denver installation. She is represented by Rebecca Friedman Books and Dana Spector, CAA for Film. She is an urban native of Apache, Chickasaw, Cherokee descent, and was raised outside of Denver, where she lives with her partner, her two, her two stepchildren, and her extremely fluffy dogs. So fluffy, huh? They're so fluffy. <laughs> I, uh, I'm having some tongue twisters for some reason on some easy words, but other than that, I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm I'm super honored to be on this. Thank you so much. Oh, it's an honor. I've um, you know, had your name on the radar for a long time. Mm. Um, some other greats, you know, you're like you are the great writer's great writer. You're you're your favorite writer's favorite writer. I've got, you know, Brandon Hobson spoke so highly of you and Morgan Talty and and I'm sure I'm forgetting others, Ruben Ruben de Goyado as well. And uh just in reading your book, it's you live up to the hype. You outdistance the hype. Aha, thank you. Those are great guys. They're all just so supportive, just beyond belief. Brandon was somebody who, you know, I saw his book um, come up around the same time there, there did. And, mm. and it wasn't getting the attention that I thought it needed. So I tried to like really, you know, push it forward. 
And it was such a lovely book. And I was so excited um, when he was long listed and then shortlisted wow. for the NBA. That just that just made my heart glad. I read his, his two books back to back and it was like, whoa, this is a major, major talent. Yes. This is yes. a major talent. I, I have a, I'm doing a bonus episode for Patreon and I, I was going to do Louise Erdrich, not interview her. I wish I could have right? do right. a discussion of Louise Erdrich and it was, it was Marquez. They had this theme, the theme in the, some of the stories and Tommy Orange. I was just going to do the prologue and I was like, you know what? This needs its like own 30 minutes, just yeah. the prologue alone. Oh yeah. <laughs> You're talking oh, yeah. about there, there. So there's right? a ton of information in there. It's it, yeah. I was like, I can't, I can't do this. This needs to be a mm-hmm. more time. So Dave Mustaine, Megadeth. <laughs> okay. I want to know any indications that he has read the book because he is all, he has listed all, he is, you know, mentioned all throughout the book. Where I grew up, it was a heavy metal town. Um, I grew up in between two small towns outside of Denver and my parents were like semi-middle class. They'd grown up very poor, but long story short, my dad liked to blow our money. And so we, we actually didn't grow up with a lot of, I mean, some middle-class things that, that some of my peers in Idaho Springs didn't have, but I was bus to school in Idaho Springs, very working class. And I was kind of a hip hop and indie kid, but um, Megadeth, Metallica, all heavy metal was the soundtrack to my childhood. Yeah. And, you know, over time I've kind of circled back and realized like how brilliant they were and why people love them so much. And I actually had pitched, my people had pitched at Flatiron Hmm. Um, something about heavy metal and Megadeth um, to the NYT and they seemed interested and then kind of dropped uh, off. So I'm like, come on, dude. But yes, um, uh, I keep getting in trouble on Twitter about Dave Mustaine. And I'm like, look, you know, my character even says in the novel, I love him, but I try to stay away from his politics. He's, he's, he's what he is, right? You know, I, not every single thing in my book is like a ringing endorsement. Although I have sure. to admit, I do love Dave Mustaine. Mm-hmm. And I do love Megadeth. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> So we were up early today. My my daughter had a soccer game. We were up so about six thirty, and I was like, you know what? She mentioned in in the book it's Hangar eighteen. The song is mentioned. Yes. So I'm just you know I'm just blasting Hangar eighteen at you know six thirty in the morning when everyone's rubbing the sleep out of their eyes. I'm like, that is a really good song, dude. I have to say, I understand now why people loved it so much growing up. The the dude is so innovative. And I went to go see him play the other day with younger heavy metal bands and they were astonishing, but he was, it was like night and day. The guy can play it's madness. And he's actually written articles in music magazines on his, um, on his methodology. The guy is is that talented. Yeah. And I love Hangar 18. It's brilliant. So. Yeah. I was like, great call on that. So I appreciate that recommendation. You might've sent me down the the, the rabbit hole a little bit, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I I saw that uh, one of my favorite bands is, is Incubus. Yeah. And uh, I saw that I, I need to catch up on my res, um, you know, on the on the series. But I guess um, Brandon Boyd played the white Jesus. Oh, wow. Interesting. So you mentioned you mentioned things about like Mustaine is almost like a godlike figure. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think in some ways, Carrie, she's very Gen X. She's very she's a tough native chick from a small town. Huh. And so she's very tongue in cheek and she'll, um, you know, she'll say things you know, in a kind of a funny way, like I'm praying to Mustaine, you know, but it's, it's kind of a joke, but at the same time, she, she, she doesn't, she kind of has a boner for him. Don't get me wrong, but she also, she doesn't want to marry him. She doesn't, but she kind of wants to be him in the sense of like, he got out of where he came from. He's talented. He's unique. He doesn't care what people think. And I think she really relates to that. So. Hmm. Yeah. I was referring to to, the Red Dogs, um, you know, the, the Harjo, the, the classic, and uh, yeah, I guess Brandon Boyd got his his time playing Jesus. That's funny. 
<laughs> yeah, I love reservation dogs. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe for Dave Mustaine's next book club, it'll be White Horse <laughs> or first book club. I don't know. <laughs> I did get it to, I did try to get it to him. I went to, when I went to see Megadeth, I found um, this cool security guard. She was, she was like a roundish, my coloring. I don't know what her ethnic background was, but I suspected something like mine. Oh. And um, she seemed super cool. And I, I pleaded my case and she said she would try, you know, so we'll see. He did kind okay. of appear in my, my feed oddly because oh. of course I follow him and I thought, uh, you know, so who knows? He might hate it though. Sure. He might be like, this is a stupid novel. It's terrible. <laughs> you know, so who knows? Yeah. <laughs> So you, I, you know, I got to admit, I, I, it took me a little while to figure out, I was like, okay, Idaho Springs, I assume that's in Idaho. I'm like, oh, that's a long drive for, for you know, carrying the book. Like, all right. But I guess they're kind of close. You know, my geography's not great. So you talk about Idaho Springs and other small towns around Denver. So tell right. us a little bit more about, about growing up there. Um, so interesting that it had like a heavy metal aesthetic or sensibility. But your like literary language life, like, I mean, did you, did you speak? Do you, is English your first? Are you monolingual? Do you dabble in a patch, you know, other languages and just kind of like what we were reading growing up, like how, how, I guess how um, constant was, was like the written word. Idaho Springs is about 45 minutes outside of Denver and, and Evergreen is about 30, 25 and Ever, Evergreen became um, more yuppie-ish um, mm-hmm. faster than Idaho Springs because it was closer. And um but I went, like I said, I was bus to Idaho Springs and there were a lot of, a lot of working class folks of lots of different demographics, primarily working class white, some middle-class folks, I would qualify as middle-class um, in some ways. And then, you know, a handful of natives, Diné, Lakota, once in a while, Anishinaabe, lots of Mexican Indians, which is, you know, what I am as well mm-hmm. um, as, uh, you know, alongside um, Chickasaw Cherokee descent. But I, the commonality was definitely like kind of poverty anger a lot of people you know their their families had worked in the mines that's why they had come there originally um it was a tough little town but i kind of admired the women there they were like carrie she's kind of modeled after a woman that always like really heckled me but i think that they heckled Mm -hmm. me because they were trying to toughen me up and i was such a wiener Uh um (laughs) i did read all the time i would hear i didn't grow up with many other i grew up with other mexican indians they were indigenous but they didn't always know what their tribal backgrounds were. And so um, I'm sure there were other um, Apaches. I didn't hear Apache growing up. I didn't hear Urtende. Um, I didn't hear Chickasaw. What I heard primarily was um, Diné or Navajo mm. and Lakota. And so sometimes I would hear those languages and I, I don't even think I realized they weren't just words that everybody knew. And then mm. Spanish was of course spoken. Um, so it was kind of woven in, in, in here and there. You'd hear Navajo or you'd hear Lakota or you'd hear Spanish and just here and there and there sprinkled. And so it was kind of peppered in there. And then um, later I kind of had to really think about like, oh, this is where I come from. It's very interesting because it's not a lot of people try to make a binary, like you're the res or you're a very upper middle-class academic urban Indian. And I'm like, that's not my experience. Uh. And especially if you're talking about Denver or Chicago or Minneapolis, you're talking about like, you know, generations of urban Indians sometimes that formed Mm sort of like mine did. Like my, some of my family is from Northern Mexico and Porfirio Diaz kind of kicks them out at some point. And then I'm a black descent and I'm Chickasaw Cherokee. You don't want to be black at that time, even when a time in the Southeast, when even some natives, you know, were slave owning. So they met in Texas and, you know, they were ranchers. They were 
cowboys. They worked in factories and like Chicago, like LA, like Minneapolis, they formed their own kind of unique urban Indian cultures. And so mm. that's kind of where I'm coming from. What I was reading growing up was just nerd lit. I, mm-hmm. someone tried to give me a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird once. And I was like, where are the dragons? Uh. Um, so I just liked all the nerdy stuff, um, all fantasy, all sci-fi, all horror. And when I went to do my undergraduate and then PhD in um, creative writing and lit, that was sort of ironed out of me. And I liked what I like to call realism. And then I realized I, I missed the dragons and more specifically sure. the ghosts. And I wanted to see if I could marry these conventions that you that I admire in literary fiction, like complex characterization, um, depth of theme, and you know, attention to form and language, and you know, really pay attention to structure, and then add the things that I really loved. And so that's how this this novel came about in relationship to where I'm where I am coming from. Hmm. Very interesting. So wh- is it pronounced Chiri Chirikawa? Chiri- the- Chirikawa. I bet you know. Oh. I wonder. You're right. Like maybe Spanish speakers do say Chirikawa. Yeah, maybe. So it. So would that be like Sonora? Like what's like what's like northern Mexico? Like very northern Mexico? Right. Exactly. Apparently. Yeah, like my Chickasaw relative used to go, she had lots of husbands. One of them was my ancestor, who was Apache. And she liked them because they were more traditional and she liked that. And so she would go down into Northern Mexico where apparently they were living in these boxcars and she would do ceremony and she'd had um, nose cancer, which went into remission. Mm -hmm. And supposedly um, she... Um, helped out in the Mexican revolution. And so I've always wondered since my family says, you know, maybe we're related to Zapata, although they might've been like, you know, they might've been like Indian related, like he was around, he was part of our Mm -hmm. group or family. I don't know. And so Mm -hmm. I was wondering what tribe he is, but I can't find anything, anything. So yeah, that's, um, that's a lot of where I'm coming from on that side. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so Spanish, I mean, you talk about, so Spanish wasn't necessarily part of your family background. Maybe it's more just people around in the town. I don't, yeah, I, I don't actually, I remember a lot of different, you know, Chicanos or Mexican Americans. Mm -hmm. um, And most of them looked pretty indigenous. Um, Maybe one of them looked more Spanish, but of course that varies from family member member to family member. Mm. So, and I remember bits and pieces, they, they didn't ever speak fluent Spanish, but there were bits and pieces of Spanish that they spoke and everyone spoke. So, right, 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 right. Very interesting. Well, you sent me down the rabbit hole again uh, for like Idaho Springs and like the suburbs of, you know, Denver and, and that kind of thing. Very interesting. As you got into high school, into college, what, what were you reading? Well, you talked about a little bit, you wanted, you wanted to get back to those dragons, like, so I guess maybe even more currently, and I got to guess, am I correct? I mean, it seems like you're, I, I would guess you're a pretty artsy person. Like, you know, you're not just mm-hmm. closing the book, you you know, you got your music. More so like who are some of the authors or filmmakers or, or musicians even who have really, who continue to thrill you, inspire you? Well, you, on you your, know. Put you on the trajectory you're on, you know? Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, I listened to Dr. Dre and, hey. um, and Snoop Dogg, and I listened to Pearl Jam, listened to Nirvana, Red Hot Chili Peppers. And so I still listen to um, those guys. And I still listen to a lot of different alternative rock. And there's an indigenous um, heavy metal band that's in Denver called A Feather and Bone. And it's sad because I wanted to go take my niece to see them. And we're, who's actually here right now with me. Mm. Um, but she's, um, but it's like the first day of my tour. So I can't do it. Uh, but um, yeah, I, you know, I love Jim Lahiri. I love Sandra Cisneros. 
Mm. Um, I was really big into them. Um, there's a writer I adore named Holly Goddard Jones. She wrote realism. She wrote crime. And then she wrote probably one of the best science fiction novels that was, that is so tremendously underrated that I've ever read. Um, the salt line is sort of a dystopia and it's, it's fantastic. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I have to say though, I don't have many hobbies beyond reading and writing. It's kind of sad. It's like, you have to like make your life about it to make it happen. So that's not sad. That's not sad. <laughs> so are you, are you the person like Carrie who's got the book at the bar then? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Nice. yeah. I don't know that I've ever pulled that. I've, I've read almost everywhere else. That's, that's, I got to get on that. I've been As a woman, it's a little hard though. Cause you know, men assume you want company and I'm like, I do not. So. Uh, okay. Yeah. Being that you you know grew up in such a multicultural area, you know at least in your neighborhood for the most part, did you did you feel represented in what you read though? Um, being to come from so many different groups, were you looking for representation? Was that something that when you finally you know when you did find it, you're like, oh, that's what I've been missing? Was it something you could have articulated? Just kind of I guess ideas around representation. Yeah, and to be clear, you know, some of my peers in Idaho Springs would not think of it as diverse. They would think of it as really white, and I think it's uh. because that is how they were taught to think. They were taught to kind of like not think of us, you know what I mean? And mm. when we, when I would, when I have reconnected with them, I'm like, well, what about so-and-so? What about, you know, what about, what about, and they're like, oh, oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Mm. Oh, oh. And, um, you know, so it's, it's interesting to see how people like within their own families, sometimes have different narratives, but um, you no, know, I didn't see, representation i went to fort lewis college and the first time i read anything by a native author was um ceremony which is by leslie marosoba which is a brilliant okay. book but very modernist um oh, the and, first time the first yeah time. yes yeah no one assigned i don't think i read one black latinx um asian author in high school i don't think i read one one and uh, certainly not an indigenous the canon one. right Oh yeah. Well, I mean, oh, I, a lot of people that I graduated with were illiterate. I mean, it was just not a oh, town man. where, but um, yeah. And someone tried to give me a copy of the something of little tree, which is mm. actually written by a formal former KKK grand dragon. Are you serious? Yeah. And I remember thinking like, cause I, I don't wade into who's really Indian or not. I'm not interested mm. in that conversation. Cause I think mm. it's gross, but that man is a former kkk dragon guy you know and so i don't know i don't think of and it, and it had a really suspiciously kind of goofy narrative and i certainly didn't identify with that and then you know as i got older i started reading more contemporary native american lit but it was very res 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 mm -hmm. and i was thinking like where are you know where are the urban indians and in all of this and mm -hmm. so yeah i think i was always for years i've been trying to talk about urban Indian culture, which is its own extremely diverse thing. You know, there are people mm. who are, you know, I'm of some black descent, but there are some people who are like black native communities in Canada, you know, who are right. very unrecognized. Um, there's the Métis Canada and they're in their own like big fight about identity. Um, Mexico is like, you know, ranges from people of indigenous heritage who really don't know a lot about it um, to people who are from very traditional communities. And so like, it's really complicated. And I feel like I know I didn't see a lot of that. So, yeah, I mean, if you watch a lot of like Mexican soap operas, they they all look like me. 
they're way yeah. more handsome, but like they're they're all European descent, right? Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Who in 2022, who are you reading? Who are you teaching? Who are you, you know, recommending to, to friends? Um, in Native American realism, certainly there's Brandon Hobson, Kelly Jo Ford, Morgan Talty. They're great guys um, and great folks in general. And then in Native American crime, there's my partner, David Heska Wombly Wyden. He wrote Winter mm-hmm. Counts. Of course, I'm biased, but I think it's mm-hmm. wonderful. And then for the horror writers, I have to admit, like, I do love Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. I think she's a genius. Um, I love how subversive her book is. I love that the bad guy is a mushroom. <laughs> I It's just so weird. And it's I love that the main character is this noirish, kind of saucy, mean, um, smart um, Native American person of Native American descent who is sent to this sort of misty part of Mexico um, to to figure out what's happened to her cousin because she's married this guy who's a British descent, right? And it's just this unfolding crazy thing. I love Grady, Grady Hendrix. Um, he could write a book every three months, and I'd probably read um, it until I'm dead. And he's or he's dead. Someone would have to be, you know, dead. Um, I love Stephen Graham Johns. He's um, my indigenous brother from another mother. This, this guy, you know, so prolific and he's so wonderfully weird. Um, I love Ring Shout by P. DeJelly Clark. Um, it talks about civil, civil um, era racism in a way that's like stunning and brilliant. He's also a professor, um, just a phenomenal, phenomenal person. And of course, um, Rebecca Roanhorse, who has probably changed the, I think, the landscape mm-hmm. of indigenous fiction forever. Mm-hmm. She is reading Black Sun as like a ticket, a magical ticket back to pre-Columbian times and just it's, you know, it's plot wise, it's fabulous, but just walking around a restaurant um, in Mayan territory and, you know, wishing I could do that, just simply walk into a restaurant um, where, you know, nothing is about anything beyond a normal day and, you know, Indian life. Like it just sounds, mm. it's it's magical in that way. So. Wow. No, I'm sorry. The last one you're talking about, that's, that's nonfiction? No, Rebecca Roanhorse. No, it's um, the, fiction. The Black Sun. Like mm-hmm. oh, okay, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, yeah. No, I've I've heard great things for sure. Yeah, she's great. So, what was like? Um, what made you think you could be a writer? Was there was there a eureka moment or moments where like, you know, have you been writing since you were two years old or well, five years old? You know, did someone you really respected say, "Wow, that's that's incredible. You need to be published." How did you really decide, like, "Hey, this could be a vocation"? I really don't know because I didn't have that experience. No one I knew was a writer. Um. I just read extremely voraciously because I was kind of a weird kid and I loved that escapism and I loved reading it. And for some reason, at one point, very early on six or seven, I said to myself that I wanted to be a writer and I still have no idea what prompted that. And, you know, I had no idea what that meant either. And so my parents were just in a panic and they were like, how about, you know, you write on the side and you, you know, major in maybe biology. And I'm like, Hmm, can't do math. So I did English. Um, and then I slowly worked my way into, into workshops as I got older and older. Um, and I, you know, started writing poems, stories, and then I started trying to put together novels. Right. So, yeah. Wow. So did you go like the tra- uh, traditional or not traditional route of like, um, you know, like MFAs and grad school? Did you kind of like get that, you know, life experience working, you know, five years before you got into really writing as more full time? like you know racking up life experience I guess wondering about that yeah no I well I mean for me I guess some people who I did go straight through to the PhD and I didn't do the MFA 
um, because the MFA wasn't the big deal at the time. My parents were still kind of fighting me on this idea and I'd internalized it. Um, so I was secretly writing a ton, but I wouldn't take workshops until I got to my doctorate. And, um, you know, I always, though, I didn't, you know, come from money. And so in the end, even though my parents were, they'd kind of tried to eke out this middle-class existence. Mm -hmm. So I'd had a job, you know, since I was 12 years old, I, I'd had, you know, restaurant jobs, babysitting jobs, working at a train store job. I'd always worked. And because I didn't come from money, even though um, I had some kind of stipend when I was doing my master's and then my PhD, that's a nine month contract of very little money. So I mm -hmm. still worked those jobs in the summer. And even when I got to um, my, my job as a creative writing professor, you have so much debt, you have a tremendous amount of debt mm -hmm. and they don't always, they're not able to give you teaching in the summer. So I still often had Joe jobs um, when I was a tenure track professor. Mm. So I've had enough real life experience to know, mm, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love to know maybe about like Stephen King's imprint. Yeah. You know, shining is a big part of the book. I don't know how much of that we'll give away, but um, you know, obviously the book was, was made into the movie by Kubrick the famous one. I think, you know, more people probably know the movie, even though the book was really well done and, and very well received, but just, you know, I was looking him up again, Wikipedia. I'm like, you know, he's been writing since like 68, 1970, something like that. I mean, he's just been around. You still see him. Still got, you know, he's very prolific. Yeah. I just wonder what kind of imprint, you know, how, can we trace any of that in your writing? You know, I don't know if you'd be able to say, aha, this really is a clear moment of, of King influence, although it'd be mm -hmm. cool if someone did. I do think that he doesn't get his due, due um, respect um, for complex characterization. He puts his characters under pressure in interesting ways. His language is occasionally poetic, but it's often very clean and it moves you forward in this incredibly persuasive way. I think in the literary world, people are so invested in the poetry of language that they forget that it's still a skill set to be able to move through compulsively. Mm -hmm. um, he's a master of structure. He's a speculative writer. And so in some ways, his books are often really big and you're just sort of like wandering in his worlds, but somehow he's a compulsive read. Right. And I find that to be really interesting and admirable. And he just comes up with great shit. The guy is just a, got a great weird head. Yeah. And when I was a kid, he was omnipresent. Horror was king in the 80s mm -hmm. and 90s. Satanic Panic was on. Mm -hmm. um, and all of my friends, you know, working class white folks, Indians, you know, Latinx people, everyone read King. People were readers. I, I hate this whole idea that somehow if we're poor, we don't read. It's not true. Mm. And everyone was reading him. And I adored him. I read pretty much everything he had to deliver, right? Just every mm. single thing. And then when I went to, like, as a college, I, I said to, I wanted to do my senior thesis on um, how King is sort of like explicating these big American fears and these big human fears. And I was laughed at by my peers. They were like, it's ridiculous. Mm. Don't do that. And I think even though I was a tough personality, they did kind of get to me because I had completely stopped reading anything speculative and it really did. It was like, hmm, in my early thirties, I started watching Dr. Who again. Mm -hmm. I read Lev Grossman's The Magicians and Lev comes from an extremely academic and or literary background, but he's like me, he's a dork and he wants to mm -hmm. read and write dork things. Mm -hmm. And it was just over for me. I read Rendezvous with Rama and I, I started reading fantasy and sci-fi. And then I, I realized like, this is what I primarily watched was fantasy and sci-fi and certainly horror. Horror was 80% of what I watched. And then finally, um, however many years ago, I was like, 
I'm going to start reading horror. And I asked Stephen Graham Jones, like, who, who would you say is like absolutely literary, absolutely horror? And he recommended a novel called Experimental Film and it was fantastic. And it, then it was just on. So mm. after that, so. Wow. So, you know, a nice segue into the book. The book is White Horse. If you're watching the home, it's over here, it's in my right shoulder. Mm-hmm. Talking about like Stephen King, I remember in a creative writing class in college, you know, we read On Writing from Stephen yeah. King. Yeah. And I just remember, I don't know that I'd ever necessarily, I didn't hate or dislike, but it was just kind of like, I, don't, I was kind of agnostic, right? Towards Stephen right. King. Right. And we read on, 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 on writing and it seems so obvious and so stupid, but it's just like, wow, he's, he's a writer. He's not a horror writer. He's a writer. Yeah. He's, you know, yeah. he's a very talented, very talented writer who's got a lot to say about the craft. Right. And again, that was a stupid realization, but, but one that did come to me on the book cover, you have the great Sylvia Garcia Moreno writes something about this being like a new wave horror. I can read it right here. Perfect <laughs> new wave horror. That's an important word that I left out there. Perfect, <laughs> perfect new wave horror. And, you know, so I guess I'm just getting at like um, the idea of horror and genre. Do you do you feel like you get, um, you know, painted into a corner kind of thing? Like, oh, you're writing horror. You're different than other writers. Is it to you like if it were your choice, you just say this is a book. This is a novel. Or, you know, what I does like, the genre mean, I guess? I like that these distinctions are getting smashed because what what's a little odd about the book world is like there's literary and there's genre. Neither one of these things is a genre. Mm-hmm. Um, literary is a series of conventions. It's, you know, depth of theme, complex characterization, attention to form and language. And it can be applied to any genre, right? Which it can be applied to horror, science fiction, realism. Mm-hmm. And then something very, you know, things that are very commercial, entertainment is first. Like you're not as concerned about depth of theme, complex characterization. You're just interested in entertainment. I think when book club fiction happens, it's both. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes it's just idiosyncratic why something becomes a book club. Sure. Um, but I think that um, the horror community has actually been very kind to me because a lot of times they've been, they're the ones who've been pigeonholed. And I think that what's great about new wave horror is that it often can, like there's a great book by S.A. Barnes, I think her name is, and it's called Dead Silence. And it's science fiction horror. It's freaking brilliant. But mm-hmm. Um, a lot of horror kind of does all the things that I did in my realism, which is it's dark subject matter, but it's gritty and it takes place on this planet in this time, right? Or in a, you know, cl- again, with Moreno's book and another, another close time, the 50s. And yet you have these supernatural elements or slasher elements. Um, some people like body horror, right? Some books are more crimey. And so what they're doing is they're taking these different conventions and what they're trying to do and what I try to do is make a more... Um, you know, more complete book that entertains, that's also smart, that takes elements of like all these fun supernatural things. I think what's funny about the literary crowd is that for them, is the ghost real? Oh, then it's genre. Is the ghost not real? It's literary. And I find that to be hilarious. What does that have to do with quality literature? It has nothing to do with it. Um, and so I, um, what I like about contemporary horror is that, you know, you have these superpowers, Stephen King, Clive Barker, and they were like the, the, the kings of the 80s and then in the 90s. And then as the genre sort of falls down and all these people are rebranded as thriller writers, now it's back up again for whatever reason, probably a lot of reasons. And you have this very queer and or diverse group of writers who are also trying mm-hmm. to kind of smash these conventions. And some of them are more literary, some of them more commercial. Sure. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I appreciate that explanation. I can tell you're a professor. 
right. I'd love to have you as a, as a professor. It's like, all right, breaking it down. I, I had a chance to talk to Todd Goldberg and I was, you know, again, not necessarily maybe something that I would pick up, you know, just by seeing the genre or whatever. And like, I mean, obviously, I mean, he's just a, he's a, he's a wizard. I mean, he's such a great writer. And he was recommending, we were talking kind of the same kind of conversation. And he was like, you know, basically like genre schmanra, you know, like he's like one of the best books I've read in the last five years is Steph Cha. Oh yeah. Right? Yeah. And yeah. it was like, yeah. And I read Steph Cha. I was able to talk to Steph. I was like, that's one of the greatest books I've ever read. Yep. Yep. Right? No crime and man, crime writers with, with um, one of the books I always recommend for craft. There's a couple Ben Percy's thrill me, Chuck mm. Wendick's, um, damn fine story, but Jane Cleland is a crime writer and her book mastering suspense structure and plot is so good because these crime writers freaking nail structure. Yeah, And I, I love that. I mean, do an alternative structure if you want. That's, that's cool. It doesn't have to be the Hollywood arc, but mm-hmm. have a structure and care about it. And those crime writers, including Steph Char, my, my, again, my partner, I think they just, they nail it. They're great. Right. So, you know, the book was your house will pay. And it was just like, you know, I had, I had some of my students who did we, uh, you know, teach in high school and we had a a book take te- book taste test right where they uh-huh. get to read a chapter or so and which one are you going to read they had 12 to pick from and like i think seven of the 12 picked you know steph cha like That's is funny. you know and they wow. were so happy that they read it yeah but wow. yeah it's one that like okay it's you know it's crime fiction oh you know maybe i wouldn't necessarily gravitate to that right. no that's a heck of a book i mean there's you know so many themes of racism and uh-huh. you know traumas i mean it's just incredible book so just Whatever, whatever name you slap on the back cover, whatever genre, it's a heck of a book. Totally. Same with, of course, White Horse. I think of like, um, I think of like, uh get out jordan peele right again horror movie i've seen maybe three or four horror movies in my life i was you know i think more of like slasher type movies right not for me not for me i'm a wimp whatever whatever you know get out was again if you're talking i mean what an unbelievable movie oh yeah right right and so he talked a lot about you know it's it's not maybe the stereotypical horror movie that people think about but he's talking about you know basically like what's what's more scary what's more traumatic than racism Right, right right So I guess I just kind of wonder about like, you know, using horror in, in white horse that has so many themes that we'll talk about, you know, again, intergenerational traumas and racism and misogyny and, you know, so many, but it's under the horror label. Like, I guess I wonder how much of the book you talked so much about structure and plot and just moving the story forward. And the plot is so intriguing and interesting. How much of you see like the book is like an allegory and how much of it is like, that's maybe like secondary. I think a good book, and that's what we all try to write, right, is is both. Um, I have to say, I primarily watch um, quickly um, horror films, and my boyfriend hates them, even though he's a thriller writer. And he's like, what are you watching? I'm like, a good show. And he's like, no. <laughs> and he's like, I can't sleep. But they help me to sleep because they're the uh, only thing that distracts me enough. Sure. I've, what I find fascinating about horror is that when when does it spill over to crime? Because like slashers right. are what people think of, but if the slasher has absolutely no supernatural qualities, maybe it is crime. And so mm. I I think about that a lot. And it's Sina Palayo, who's a indigenous Puerto Rican um, American writer, who writes these um, novels that I think are right on that line. And I find them so fascinating. She's a fabulous mm. person, a fabulous writer. 
And, you know, um, but yeah, I love The Ring. I love The Conjuring because The Ring is certainly an art house film. The Conjuring is just brilliant in execution in terms Mm. of what it does. I think that what good books do and certainly what good horror books do and good literary books do is they're doing something on the surface, right? They're moving you along in terms of what's actually happening, the plot. Um, And then underneath it all, all of these things, these things that are happening have an impact, you know, there's this underneath emotional reason rising mm-hmm. up. And so, yeah, I think for me, I actually like the idea of a sort of dark magical portal to another world. There is something mm-hmm. always, I'm a dork and I will always be compelled by that stuff. However, yeah, I think it's, it's clear that the main character, she's very happy to be indigenous. That's not her problem. It's not a journey of like right. learning who she, you know, learning to love herself as an indigenous person. But it is a journey, you know, for this like cynical, tough, self-educated um, person to be like, ugh, spirituality, ugh, not into it, you know. And but it is a journey for her to realize, like, mm, maybe, maybe my mom was not who I thought. Maybe there is a way to do spirituality in such a way that might um, not be cheesy and might speak to who I am. Mm. And so I think that's kind of what's going on underneath. And as the mother's ghost is literally haunting her. And I don't, I try not to dissipate that at the end. I try not to make it like, oh, she was actually just having an episode. No, I want it to be, it was an actual ghost because that's more fun. But I do think the mom, you know, who we, who we are, regardless of where we're coming from, and certainly if we're coming from intergenerational trauma, it matters and it impacts, impacts our daily lives. And I think Mm. we all have to recognize that at a certain point that we're haunted by our ancestors, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some would like, if I think of like some of the scariest scenes I've ever, I've ever seen, and I'm not a huge movie guy. I don't watch a lot for whatever reason, but I mean, I do, I think of like the ET scene, oh, <laughs> maybe yeah. with the, right. With all the protective, the doctors or the FBI <sighs> did or whatever the heck they were. Right. I, cried. I just, right? Cried. I cried oh, as a kid God. and that made my parents, you know, take me to see it again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> see, that's the difference. Right. And uh, you know, like um, Candyman, I saw Candyman. I was probably way too young. Besides, besides, I remember at the end, one of like, I think the girlfriend or something, I thought she was like the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. I was 13 or whatever, right? Yeah. I just, I remember, you know, I never again. But like, as I got older, like, you know, there are themes there. There's yeah. a, you know, there's behind the scenes. It's not just, uh, you know, straightforward. I, I'm interested if you've seen this movie. I had a friend who was such a big fan of Shaun of the Dead. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. And she tried to pitch it to me as if it was, you know, there's so many themes. And, and I'm just like, it's just a zombie movie. But again, I think yeah. I went with a closed mind. Right. Sometimes I just kind of think like maybe those type of things are just too kind of too on the nose. I think sometimes what happens is, you know, if you're if your tastes are generally speaking realism or literary, mm-hmm. you you kind of want those themes to be kind of hammered at you. And I think in some ways this is part of what I admire about good horror or good sci-fi or good um fantasy mm-hmm. is that it's so persuasive what's going on. The yeah. action is so interesting and fun. That you can, if you want, ignore what's happening underneath. And you can, mm-hmm. if you want, not see the themes that are being, you know, um, sure. shot forward in such a subtle way. I, and so I just like that dance. I admire that dance, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. To make it clear, I'm the one, I, you know, I'm, I was not right. Obviously, way more people saying, you know, <laughs> the Son of the Dead or whatever is a classic or those others. Like, I'm, I'm in the minority and there's a reason I'm wrong, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I love if if you don't mind, maybe like what was your pitch for the book? Like how would you kind of describe it? I don't want you know, I don't you don't have to give a 30 minute summary, but how would you pitch the book? How did you pitch the book? Essentially, the 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 short log line, right, is indigenous literary horror. 
Um, but the longer one is, you know, it's about Carrie, who's an urban native and she loves heavy metal and she loves Stephen King or she loves heavy metal. She loves horror, the film and the, and the books and specifically, obviously Stephen King and Dave Mustaine, mm. but she despises her mother because she believes she has abandoned her when she was two days old until right. Her um, super sweet, well-intentioned white cousin, Debbie finds this bracelet of her mother's that is ancient. Um, and the main character touches it and the mother starts haunting her. And then, right. There's this, you know, evil Bigfoot in a way, monster creature who's invading her dreams. And then she decides, well, I have to figure out what happened to my mother after all. Hmm. So. I appreciate that. The, the, I don't know if I call it an epigraph or like the, the intro, um, like thank you or, or like dedication is basically like thanking those who came or, you know, like, Hey, this is for those who came back to horror, my fellow right. nerds. Right. Right. That was so cool. I always tell my students nerd is a compliment. I hope I'm a nerd. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, it wasn't cool when I was growing up, right? Like it was like nerd, you know. Was, yeah, I'm a nerd. But then now it's like, oh, I'm a nerd. It's so cool, and I'm like, wow, that's that's new. <laughs> Unrelated, real quick, but that's what I was going to say. When you when you wrote about the you know the bracelet in the book, it's described as turn of the century. I'm not going to lie. I was like, oh, 2000. I'm like, oh no no. <laughs> I was like, I'm like, oh man, shoot. I'm getting it's old. actually um, okay. based off of my family's bracelet uh-huh. right here. It's a, uh, it you is. can't even see it. Um, so I, this has, it's like copper, which a lot of native jewelry was. I don't, I think this is, it might be turn of the century. I think it's more like twenties or thirties. It was in my family. My mom gave it to me. My grandmother had it. Oh my I think gosh. she got it from hers. There's a lot of planes iconography on it because that was what was most popular time, regardless mm. of your, your tribal background. And so I kind of tried to make it a little fancier um, in the book, you know. Oh, wow. Thank you. That's so cool to get to see the inspiration right there. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. Was there a lot of research you had to do? Yeah, I did do some research. Some of it was, you know, what what I know about my own background. Um, but yeah, I did a lot of research on um, The Shining because mm. everyone has their pet theories about it. And I have mine, but I wanted to know, I actually went to... Mm. um the the overlook i went to the stanley hotel and i'd gone there as a young person with my niece who's actually here you want to wave yeah hello my niece (laughs) (laughs) or maybe i always make her do it (laughs) so um so yeah we we went there and it was hilarious because we took the tour and the tour was hilarious and awesome and the guy who ran it was, Sleep was tight. yes, I will, I will never forget that. I pictured him, you know, cause he would, he would be like this, Hi, <laughs> you know, and he had this, you know, very distinct accent, but he, um, in the middle of the night. So we had gotten the room that the room is, is in the book. And as much as I love, you know, all of this stuff, I'm so fascinated by the paranormal and I'm like, always mm. you know, listening to recordings or seeing if I can find, oh, it sounds real, but I'm like, no, it's not, you know, <sighs> but um, we were told that a, something like a white guy who stands in the corners and, you know, glares at you is in that room. And then he might scratch you if he doesn't like you. And so we bought him mm. a spirit plate. And every time we talked to him and said, thank you for letting us stay in, his, in our room, the light would flicker. And it got to me because in the middle of the night, my niece at the time was 14. And I was like, Maeve, could you turn on the light? Because I have to use a bathroom. Like, I couldn't do it. I made her do it. So, oh, man. That was a long five foot walk or whatever, 10 foot walk, huh? It really was. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah, but it was great. That's so I did a lot of research um, about King, about The Shining. I went to the hotel. 
Um, yeah, lots of different research. Did, I'm so interested in the plot because there are so many, not gotcha moments, but so many like, whoa, and, you know, and, and, and plot twists. Did you like, I mean, did you work backwards? Did you, are you someone who's like all visual? You have like a, what they call it, like a storyboard. I just, you know, wonder about how you made everything like connect in the end, make it cohere. I, I think a lot of um, literary writers are like structure doesn't matter. And I'm just going to write forward. And I really believed them when I was younger mm. and I, I shouldn't have, I have a really messy head and I love language and I love um, idea and I love complex characterization and it was a bad idea. And I had always valued story. I value structure and I value story. Mm. So when I got together with my, my, my partner he being a, a thriller writer was like, well, you should probably start with these more nuts and bolts books because I've been like, well, here are all these fancy mm-hmm. books. And he was right. Um, and save the cat. I know people make fun of it, but if you have a really disorganized head, it's great for you. And mm-hmm. so the beat sheet chapter, I think for people who have like done MFAs or just done um, a lot of literary realism, reading and talking and conversing, and that's who your peers are. It's actually a really great um chapter because it sort of lines it up it doesn't mean you have to conform to it totally but again the second thing that I started reading at the tail end and it really helped was Jane Cleland because I had never been given this idea of like red herring like twist Mm. and I like those things those are actually very hard to master and so I wanted to know how to do that and so I I just I have a beat sheet I have things that are my twists I have things that are my red herrings and they're fun and they're hard. They're hard to master. So I don't sometimes understand why literary people mm. um, shaw them so much because they're hard. <laughs> they're hard for me anyway. You got me thinking about who the red herrings would be. Okay. Or who or what? Okay. I have, all right. I got a, I got a couple mm. of theories. Mm-hmm. All right. Because have you reached the end? So you don't know yet? I'm done. Oh, you do know? Okay. Oh, I, well, I shouldn't say then. I shouldn't say anyway because it's on the podcast. But Right. But I'm just thinking about like, well, I'm thinking about like the, the police, um, the retired Okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. Let me, it's going to take me too long to get through my thoughts. All right. <laughs> so you talked about, you know, the thought was that Carrie James, the the narrator had that her mom had left it when, when Carrie was two years, two days old, excuse me. Right. And because of that, you know, she hated her mom growing up because of that, her dad apparently supposedly, you know, became a drunk or, you know, dove into to alcohol. He got into a, uh, an accident, a, a car accident, Right. He basically, right, had had severe brain damage and and really needed full time care, you know. Um, from then on, there's uh the Debbie's the cousin who we re- I think you referenced, um, who you know was like another sister. Her husband that's in that first chapter. Have you ever been to an apartment by the way that had a miniature golf setup? No, I I it that was, was cool. based off of uh I had a friend growing up, and her um her father had bought an abandoned complex next door. And for some reason, my head did that. <laughs> it was cool. So, you know, the, the, I think the book even starts off with that chapter where it's like, you you see, um, you know, you see again, Debbie's the cousin and she and her husband, is it Jay? Gosh, now I'm forgetting. Yeah. Oh, Jake. I want to say it's Jake. Yeah. Jake. Okay. Okay. So, you know, she and Jake are, are, are fighting They're You know, she's fighting for her independence and, you know, Carrie definitely does not like him. And there's some, major blowups as the book goes on and then there's like the specter and it's if you can say a specter is literal it's a literal and figurative specter of jamie right who was um you know carrie's best friend who died maybe like what 16 or 17 but older than that 
Yeah, it had to be something like that. I can't remember. I'm bad. My agent's really good at helping me math. Um, <laughs> what the math was. But yeah. Yep. Well, yeah, just that, that, you know, there's, there's obviously there's, there's guilt, there's trauma. Her friend died of a drug overdose. You know, um, Carrie had some, some, a lot of those times, you know, hanging out with, with guys and drinking, you know, underage and, and those kind of things. And it was obviously tragic and, and horrific that, that Jamie died. And there's that, there's that guilt and that, that specter that's with her at all times. Talking about guilt. I mean, that's obviously a major theme. There's, yeah, there's the, the micro themes, of, you know, within like one person, just about, I guess, like intergenerational traumas, right? And like, like a bigger, almost societal way, but obviously through the family. Misogyny for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, go ahead, please. <laughs> yeah, no, I think so. The book does start in the White Horse, which is actually a bar, an Indian bar in Denver that was that was bought recently uh... some at some point in the end production of the novel and probably... It's been an Indian bar for possibly 50 years longer. Oh, wow. Um, and it's sad because I know they're going to bulldoze over it almost certainly. And oh. it makes me really sad. But yeah, you know, it's 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 the Denver Indian institution. I know it's a bar, but like that is why I said it there. That is why it's titled that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, but as to guilt. Yeah. And these other themes, I think that. Carrie's a pretty confident personality, mm-hmm. but she has to kind of come to grips with, Ooh, I've been kind of letting my cousin be my husband and my best friend and my everything. And I need to, you know, cut her a break. And even if I don't like her husband, me just, you know, banging on her about it, isn't going to help. Mm-hmm. And so um, I wanted to show that the men in the book, um, I don't want to be like, and really, you know, they all redeem themselves. Yay. It's all good. Um, but I wanted to show like, um, a multidimensional process, like the main characters, um, cousin's husband, she finally hardlines him, and right. He's given a chance and a choice. And I think that's, to me, that's a viable route out. Like everything's realistic in there in the sense mm-hmm. of the way in when, which men can function sometimes. Mm. The main character, you know, um, there's obviously, I don't want to reveal too much, um, but I also wanted to show um, how sometimes men will avoid accountability, why, where they're coming from, especially as native men. And, you know, again, what what is what 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 is a route out? What is an authentic route out? So. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, you know, I mean, there are um, being young and being with men. I mean, they're always they're probably not as on guard as they should be because they're young. But, you know, they're they're very they're bad men. Um, obviously, the major plot line or the major uh, you know thing that happens at the end or thing we find out at the end, obviously, is is very much um, very tragic, to say the least. I wonder just about, you know, without saying I don't want to talk about that last part because that's you know, that's the I don't want to spoil that part. <laughs> But just I, I wonder about the idea of like, and it's a it's a trite cliche. I even heard Darn, I think Kanye West using it recently, but like the idea of like hurt people hurt people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, Carrie almost literally like puts like, okay, I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to think about my my mother and that. And either by drinking, you know, smoking, you know, get going out with guys, or just literally just I'm not gonna think about it. I'm gonna watch TV, I'm gonna get get, you know, more positive things like music and that's thing. But I just wonder about like hurt people, hurt people. Is that, and just the idea of like the traumas yeah. and, and cycles. And, like, I'm not asking you, I'm not asking you to tell me in a sense how we stop them, but I just wonder what that book has to say about that. I think natives are great. Um, we all do. It's a human thing, but natives are 
this is a, a big deal because like, you know, again, like the whole identity who's really native or not, I try not to wade into because it's so destructive, mm. but I can see just the constant, um, I call Twitter the shame machine, or I call it like um, the wasteland because I can just see them just, you know, killing each other over this. Um, mm. And I'm like, for what, you know, like, because I think the problem is like, there was a time in which the idea was, you know, white folks are in control they need to appoint who is the most authentic Indian mm. to talk to them and tell them all the, the, all the things and be the one. And I'm like, that is a destructive space to be in. And I don't understand why natives have forgotten that. Like mm. I, I like it now where you have, again, Brandon Hobson, Kelly, Joe Ford, um, David Heskawambi Wyden, Stephen Graham Jones, they're all succeeding all at once. And there needs to be um, a real acknowledgement of, again, like this is technically my background as well, Black natives, Latinx natives, urban natives. Um, and yes, I do want to see more natives like Morgan, um, who come from reservations, you know, writing as well, but we can all do this at once. And the value that I was raised with, even though obviously my family is problematic in its own way, is raise all together, raise everyone mm. up together. And so I do think what I'm, I see these dynamics, my own family, and other native families, you know, this legacy of shame, genocide, colonization, boarding schools, day schools, um, the way the government does or does not categorize you, you know, in the United States, right, we have a situation where if you're on the reservation, the government's tracking you incessantly. If you're off, you know, unless you're visibly black, you know, you're, they're told just, just put down white. Canada, mm. you have a different situation where it's, you know, they track them, urban Indians, with the exception of some black natives, from what I understand, um, incessantly as well. But then it just becomes like, well, whose ancestor is too distant? you know? Mm. And then Mexico, it's like so many people are indigenous, um, but the government, I, I, I feel like their record keeping is not that wonderful. And it's also like people self-identified, um, you know, in order to help themselves. And mm. so like, oh, I'm, I'm just Spanish. And so I think like there's, yeah. there's a huge, you know, there are big, ugly things that happened um, and they're complicated and all these different countries are kind of crashing together in various ways. And I think sometimes when people facetiously try to apply a standard to from one country to the other, right. Mm. Um, or just straight up ignore how complicated it is in order to gain an audience. And I think sure. that, um, yeah, I, I think the only way to diminish that hurt people, hurt people thing in our communities is to have better, honest conversations where people are acknowledging how complicated and interwoven these these communities are. So mm. I, I don't remember the exact line to, to paraphrase to paraphrase the the blurb from Stephen Graham Jones for this book. It was something like um, it's a book about natives without ostensibly being about natives. Does that sound about yeah. right. Yeah, Stevens, he's um he's really good at those. Poor Steven, he's like a approach for so many blurbs. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry, you know. Yeah. Um, but he really liked it. It was really cute. He actually emailed me and he's such a, a wonderfully I love him because he's such a, a wonderfully nerdy guy too. Mm. Um and great glasses like, yeah. too, right? Oh yeah. You know, he's like uh well, he's very like, you know, he's one of those native guys that like there should be a wind machine on, on him at all times. But then when you like meet oh. him, he's like, I like comic books. You know, he's <laughs> I just love that about Steve. He's such an unassuming kind guy. And um, his wife is cool. He's, you know, he's, he's just a cool guy. That's so, cool. yeah. So, but yeah, he was so funny. He emailed me. He's like, 
yeah, you know, didn't even realize who the, who was, it was, wow, really good job, you know? Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I said something about native without trying because I do native without trying. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I don't, I think that it's regardless of what your demographic is, if you care about the bigger issues and you're trying to weave them organically in your book, there are going to be moments where people are going to say things that are a touch more overt. But mm. I think that for me, if I'm going to really just write about an idea or a concept, I want to take that to an article that I'm going to write. And so um, I don't, you know, I want all my characters to seem like real people um, who are in real circumstances, even though it's completely fiction. Hmm. It's not a binary, it's not a, a polar opposites, but like, you know, this sort of theme of like the rational versus the the visceral, the spirit world. Again, they're not, you know, direct opposites mm-hmm. or in opposition, but I don't know. I guess kind of seeing Ant, Ant Squeaker, which is a great name and great character oh. as mm-hmm. kind of like representative. Well, representative of like the old, the old, I mean, she's older, literally older, right? Yeah. But also more like of the spirit world. And Carrie, you know, for the, I mean, especially at the beginning, and she has a lot of experiences that change her, but she's not into that at all, right? No, she loves Auntie Squeaker. And Auntie Squeaker is from her, you know, Apache indigenous side. And, you know, she's kind of like what people call a curandera mm. or a spiritual person or whatever. Um, but she, you know, she, I think Carrie just, it's just, it's probably a sore spot when it comes to her mother. And it's also just, again, she's a pragmatic person. She mm-hmm. just, it's just not her thing. She doesn't want to go to church. She doesn't want to go to native American church. <laughs> she doesn't want him. So. Right. Right. You know, so she's someone who like, I mean, she's, as she's experiencing some of these spiritual things, she's telling herself, no, 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 but it's, you know, she can't, she can't resist. They are for her. They are real. Yeah. Um, right. And yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it's such a great character, Auntie Squeaker. She's got like a crew too, right? Whenever she shows up at a place, it's like, she rolls yeah. like 20 deep or something, it seems like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I wonder about like place as a character, like the bar, you know, that you, you do a good job with the, you do a great job with like, you know, the, <laughs> like the dive bar, so to speak, versus like the gentrified, like, you know, yuppie type of bars, yeah. you know, Idaho Springs and the suburbs. And I just wonder about how much, yeah, like place helped ground you. For this book yeah i know springs is so it's not even a suburb like i'm in a suburb oh, right, right 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 but it's like a town like way you know but mm-hmm. yes what for in many ways what a i wanted carrie even though she has a ged to i wanted to honor that she is self-educated and she knows stuff she knows stuff mm-hmm. about horror she knows stuff about um heavy metal and she knows stuff about old denver she's she is mm-hmm. knowledgeable in that way and in some other ways too i just wanted it to be an homage to old Denver because old Denver is kind of dying. Like, you know, Lakeside amusement park, which I, I did go actually for yeah. research. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. And I'd been there so many times as a kid and it was, it was a wonderfully spooky place. Um, <laughs> the white horse, which is, you know, you know, just so unique and, and I'm sad it's, it's gone. Um, there are lots of places like that in Denver, Casa Bonita, um, mm. which has actually now been bought by the South park guys. So we'll see what happens. I hope they keep it real. I hope they keep it like it was. So, yeah. Casa Bonita. I feel like I've read about that. Maybe with, um, I don't know this, if you know, Gustavo Arellano, he's a, he kind of literally wrote the book on Mexican food in America. Oh, funny. And I think he, I think he definitely shouted out in his book, but yeah, definitely the way way you described in the book and the way you described it now. Yeah. 
it is possibly historically, and any Denver native will tell you this, the worst quote unquote Mexican <laughs> food you can ever have. Like maybe New York in the eighties had worse. <laughs> but otherwise, no, it would be. Oh, and apparently the South Park guys are going to change that, which that, uh, I'm not sure that change. That's sure. a good change. So. Okay. Oh, shit. I think I'm, I'm treading into dangerous waters here. This is a uh, Denver and Colorado. This is green chili or red chili. Um, well, what's weird is they do both, but their green chili is like a stew. So okay. if you go to New Mexico and you ask for green chili, you'll get actual green chilies. Whereas here, uh, you like, I like green chili because my boyfriend and I used to argue about it because I spent a lot of time in New Mexico and um, he, it's like a stew. It's like, okay, you know, I don't explain, like they put yeah. it on your food. It's so, it's totally different here. So. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, so White Horse, again, is, is such a such a great book. It's I mean, you bring in the history. There's some of the visions she has. I mean, it goes back to Geronimo. There's, of course, like the Medicine Bag and the War Club. Apache. Pa- pardon me. Pardon me. The Apache War Club and, you know, Russell Means. And there's a lot about, you know, the American Indian movement aim of, you know, the 70s and such, you know, which um, Cecilia, Carrie's mother, was involved in. Right. So, mm-hmm. I mean, like you said, if somebody wanted to, you know, wade through certain books that are like, oh, this is a mystery. Well, there's going to be a great plot maybe if you're not in the, you know, this book has everything, puts it all together. Um, Carrie is a very sympathetic character even when she's not being nice necessarily, right? (laughs) You're definitely drawn to her. So many interesting characters, not even talking about like, um, you know, Carrie's grandparents, you know, the police, the the retired detective, um, the the history, the psychological thriller part of it, right? Like I think of... um, Going back to Get Out, I think of like that scene where he's she's teaching him how like not to smoke anymore, right? Oh yeah, right. God, that was right? so scary. scary, right? Scary. I think of like um, Leonardo DiCaprio and like was it Django when he's talking about like Samuel L. Jackson? He's talking about like the former slave, you know, just like scary in movies are not scary, scary. Yeah, in this yeah. book, there are parts where it's not, you know, it's not scary, it's not slasher, but the psychological part of it and getting into to Carrie's head and, and you know how universal is guilt. How universal is, is trauma? So it's very singularly your book, singularly about you know your, your part of the world, et cetera, et cetera, and it's, and it's universal. So huge congratulations! I'm not the only one saying it, of course. Tell us about you know publisher, where to buy it, maybe if it's uh you know some local bookstores. Um, give yeah. your social contacts, your social media info, and all that. Yeah, I'm basically E R I K A T W U R T H. And at on everything on the TikTok. Uh huh. TikTok too? Oh, yeah. And you'll see me awkwardly do try to do like I had to hire uh, a former student to teach me how to do TikTok because I'm 90. <laughs> and but she was good at it. Ashanti, I'm so shout out to Ashanti. <laughs> All right. And um, <laughs> I am on Twitter and um, Instagram. But yeah, um, I'm trying to think. So yeah, Flatiron, um, which is an imprint of Macmillan, just knocks it out of the park. They mm. care about YA and commercial and fantasy and horror. And I think a lot of their books have a literary edge, right? Mm. Um, so it was a really good fit for them. And not only that, but their team is amazing. Zach Wagman and Maxine Charles are my editors. They're great. Um, Amelia and Christopher um, are my publicity. And Catherine Tro is, is my my um, social media person and swag person. Mm. They did these cool retro keychains for me. They're just great. They're like a really cool, supportive um, imprint. I love them. And um, the book has a lot of things going for it. Um, early on, a sort of top secret thing um, happened. I guess it's on 
it's you can see it now, but I was told by my ah. people not to talk about it. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, so one big thing happened, like a book clubby type thing, and then um it started to put that machinery forward. And then I think people just kind of liked it, right? Mm. It's just not a it's kind of a weird book in certain ways, right? It's crimey, it's horry, it's and that's not a wrong horror-ish. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, this is sort of tough urban Indian who has a she's funny and she's mean, but she's lovable, like you say. And it just seemed to have some movement. And then a couple other, like I got on all these lists, which is amazing. Yes. I'm so appreciative to people. And um then you know it might even be on the tv so that that might be in the tv yeah yeah so i'm I'm excited about that we'll see if it doesn't end up on the cutting room floor so oh my gosh yeah i mean so november 1st comes out that's right officially officially that's shoot that's next we're recording on a saturday that's not this tuesday but the next how you feel how you feeling terrified really um excited you know all of my all the small presses that i published with look they they were great they're wonderful people but they will tell you we have a certain budget and so mm-hmm. it's nice to have you know it's nice to be with with uh, with an imprint that really can put their weight behind it and they have right. and they've also just loved it and been just as kind and wonderful as, as my small press experiences so but it's also really super nerve-wracking mm-hmm. um yeah and i'm working on a, a new one too so I was just going to ask you about that. You can tell, you can say as little or as much as you like about the next project. It's called Room 904. And I don't know, um, it's not official yet, but Flatiron is acquiring it. And hey. um, yeah, it's about, um, it's more new Denver. This main character is kind mm. of femi in a way that carries kind of masculine mm. um, or tough. And she's kind of a millennial and she likes brunches. Um, but her thing is she's a paranormal investigator. She was uh, finishing her PhD in uh, psychology when her sister suicided and it sort of turned on her powers. And now she can speak to the, the dead, see the dead um, and even, you know, tap into their memories. And so she and her um, best friend and sort of platonic life partner, who's a, a queer man with HIV, um, do this. That's, that's what they do. They live together and they're best friends and platonic partners and, um, they're paranormal investigators together. And then her, her big, her big thing is the Warrens. She's obsessed with the Warrens from the conjuring series. And she sees mm. them as like her sort of like predecessors. And then at one point though, the Brown palace calls her in and says, you know, we need you to investigate. These people are being murdered. They check in this room, one room, they show up in room 904. They suicide every two, two women every nine years. And she doesn't want to do it because this is where her sister suicided. Um, this is where her sister was obsessed with this cult. And then um, but she sees her sister's um, haunting and she still doesn't want to do it. But then her mother checks in and she's like, well, my mother has three weeks to live. So I better, I better do something. Whoa, this is a this is a fully realized, fully developed or pretty dang close to it sounds like beat sheets. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you you create some memorable characters. That's for sure. I, I love that idea of like the platonic uh, roommates. Yes. Right. Platonic. Especially as a female writer. I'm always like, there is another way, you know. Mm, very interesting. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. It's so cool to get in the lab to see the the the, inspi- the inspirational bracelet you know, to, to talk some of the themes and some like some bigger themes. And again, I can tell you're a professor <laughs> and heck of a book. And I'm so excited for people to get it. And it would make a great movie or, or miniseries, but obviously it would stand alone by itself. So congratulations on the great accomplishment. And I hope you can enjoy all the, all the fanfare that comes in these next weeks and months. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me. It really was an honor. The honor was mine. Thank you so much. What a pleasure it's been to speak to Erica T. Worth. 
continue good luck with her writing. I'm so looking forward to continuing to follow her career and her important work. Thanks for listening to episode 149 with Erica T. Worth. You can now subscribe to this podcast on Apple. Please leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa. Find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Although we don't like to give a lot of money to that Jeff Bezos guy. Uh-huh. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube. Watch and subscribe to the Chills at Will Podcast channel. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look at an often ignored art form. As of yesterday, October 21st, we're now official on Patreon. Please look for the Chills at Will podcast on Patreon. Sign up. You see all the benefits you have there. There are three different tiers. The intro song for the podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 150 with Elizabeth Williamson, a feature writer at the New York Times and a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Her work has appeared in The Atlantic, Rolling Stone, and Slate. Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for the Truth, was published in 2022, and this episode will air on November 1st. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these quarantine days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Erica T. Worth, whose work, like Whitehorse, gives you Chills at Will. Will.